Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. We're jumping into the book of 1 Corinthians this time. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the believers in the city of Corinth. The Corinthian church was Paul's most troublesome church. Against a backdrop of schisms, heresies, animosities, bitter contentions, and unrepentant open sin, Paul writes this really profound letter about true wisdom, the power of God present in the cross, the foundational truth of Christ's resurrection, unity within the church, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and about Christian ethics. Whereas we call this 1 Corinthians, it's actually not the first letter that Paul writes to the believers at Corinth. Um, Like so much that is present in the Bible, the specifics and the exact timeline are a little bit disputed. It's not all firm. Scholars disagree. But I'm going to give you the timeline that I think is the most likely one. Around AD 51 or 52, Paul visits the city of Corinth on his second missionary journey. We read about this in Acts chapter 18. While there, he meets Priscilla and Aquila. He establishes the church, and he stays there in ministry around 18 months. After leaving, he writes a letter back to the church that we'll call that letter number one, written somewhere near the end of that second missionary journey. This letter is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, but the content and the letter itself has been lost to us. Apparently, word had reached him of some of the struggles that the Corinthian church was facing, and he writes to give them some advice and some encouragement as they address those problems. Then the Corinthians write back to him. The church writes him, and this is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. They have some questions, and they need some more advice. So Paul writes them what we'll call letter number 2. And that is what we have in our Bible as 1 Corinthians. Um, it's dictated by Paul to a man named Sosthenes. This was very common to use an amanuensis or a secretary to write your letters for you. Um, Paul and Sosthenes are in the city of Ephesus, and this is just before the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. It's around AD 54 or 55. Chloe and family or friends of hers have told him about some issues that the Corinthians church are experiencing, and he's answering the questions in the letter that they sent to him. Then Paul goes and visits the Corinthian church. So this is his second visit, and it's very often called the sorrowful visit or the tearful visit. It's not recorded in the book of Acts, and all we know about it is what we can gather from these letters. It was a brief visit as Paul was on his way to Macedonia. Um, he references his intention to visit 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and then he refers to it as having happened in 2 Corinthians 13. Timothy had also visited with the Corinthian church, and he's brought news back to Paul that needs a, a swift response. So take a look at 1 Corinthians 16, 5 through 8, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2, and 1 Corinthians 16, verses 10 and 11. Then we have letter number three from Paul to the Corinthian church. This is often called the severe letter. Um, this is the letter that causes the sorrow that is mentioned in 2 Corinthians 7, 8. You also see it referenced in 2 Corinthians 2, 4. It was probably written after the second visit to Corinth. That's why it's here in the timeline. And before he returns to Ephesus from Macedonia. So he visited on his way to Macedonia, and then he writes them once he gets to Macedonia. He witnessed or experienced something in Corinth that has bothered him greatly. Um, and he originally planned to go back by on his way returning from Macedonia to Ephesus, but he decides that it's it's not a good time. It might not be the best idea. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, and verses 23 through the second chapter, the first verse. Then he writes them a fourth letter, letter number four, and letter number four is what we have as the letter called 2 Corinthians in our Bible. He probably writes it from the city of Philippi around AD 56 on his third missionary trip or his third trip to Macedonia. Titus has arrived and told Peter um, some more encouraging news. There's better news about what's going on in Corinth. And so he writes um, to encourage them, to share with them his pleasure over hearing this better news, and to prepare them for another visit. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 7, 2 Corinthians 7, 13, and 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 5. Now, the content of letter number 3, the severe letter, is believed to have been lost to us. We only have the second letter and the fourth letter, which we call the 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But there are some scholars who believe that letter number 3, the severe letter, is, is not lost to us. It has simply been absorbed into the book of 2 Corinthians and that we have it as chapters 10 through 13. That would make them out of order, but they would be present. Um, I'll leave that for you to decide when we get to 2 Corinthians. Let's jump into chapter 1. Verses 1 through 3 are the salutation or the greeting. It comes from Paul and Sosthenes. They are the senders. And Paul accentuates his call. He was called by Jesus, by the will of God. And his emphasis on the Father and the Son's role in his call and his status as an apostle is appropriate because there's opposition here in Corinth to him as an, as an apostle. Um, he emphasizes the sanctification of the church there in Corinth and that they are called to be saints. In other words, even in his greeting, he's calling them to be better than they're currently being, that they need to live like the redeemed people that they are. And he greets them with what becomes his standard greeting of grace and peace. So Sharas and Shalom. In verses four through nine, we have a Thanksgiving session. 
Um, Paul does this in almost all of his letters, and he usually highlights in the thanksgiving or the the prayer that comes here some of the matters that he's going to address in the letter itself. Their excessive zeal for charismatic gifts is going to need to be tempered by concern for church unity, for love, and for proper order in worship. They lean way too much on persuasive rhetoric and human words of wisdom, which were common in the the Roman Empire around them. Um, Paul scolds them no less than six times in this letter for that. Paul, however, is confident that God can empower them to be fruitful. Chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 6, verse 20 is really the body of this letter. And from chapter 1, verse 10 to chapter 4, verse 21, Paul's going to address some of the problems. The problems are divisions in the church, an incorrect view of apostolic ministry, an elitist form of spirituality, and worldly preferences. Um, These appear to be some of the concerns that were shared um, with Paul by Chloe's people. Um, There's a lot of speculation around who Chloe might be. Some say that she is a prominent householder, and since that's a female name, she would likely have been widowed but had children. So she has at least a son who may be young or may already be be an adult, but that was really the way that women um, actually got to be in charge of a household. Her people could be family, it could be friends, um, it could be members of her church, or it could be servants of hers. There's growing support for Chloe being recognized as the host of one of the churches in the city of Ephesus, where she probably lives. The churches at this time didn't have separate buildings to meet in. They met at somebody's home. And whoever hosted the church tends to be the caretaker, kind of the the parental um, nurturing influence, which came to be the role of pastor. Um, If this is true, then um, she's a prominent female minister like Priscilla and Phoebe, are who have connections to the church at Corinth as well. Take a look at Acts 18.1 and Romans 16.1 and 2. Um, the, if this is true, then this argues very much against the fact that Paul opposes women speaking in church or being in ministry. And it might um, truly land toward the fact that the people, her people who bring this message could have been members of her church. But Chloe may live in Ephesus, but she has business in the city of Corinth. And so it's either members of her church or servants in her household, or they may have been both, that are worshiping with the believers in Corinth while they're there on business. Um, Verses 10 through 17 show us that there are divisions in the church, and they go beyond simple disagreements. Wesley called this an alienation of affection. There are deep factions as people are becoming devoted to individual apostles. It is always a danger when people become devoted to other people. We become devoted to Christ, and we invest in worshiping and serving 
in a community of believers. A church, a mission, a ministry cannot be built around a single person's personality, whether that be the pastor or any other staff member. We must always be more devoted to Christ than to a person. But the people in Corinth are dividing up lines and factions. Some are devoted to Paul, to Apollos, to Cephas, and a few say to Christ. Um, there. So who is Apollos? Apollos is an Alexandrian Jew who has very eloquent speaking ability. He is helped along his way and taught more fully by Priscilla and Aquila. We see this in late in the chapter 18 of Acts and into chapter 19. He went to Corinth with recommendation letters from Ephesus, where he's from. So if Chloe is from Ephesus, she may know Apollos. Um, he may be out of the church that she hosts. She may have written one of those recommendation letters, and she may send her servants to go check up on him. While you're in Corinth, um, taking care of my business, go by and see Apollos and see how he's doing with the believers there. Um, while there's no indication that he ever works directly with Paul, they're never partners in ministry, there's also never any indication that they um, oppose each other in any sort of way or ever end up on opposite sides of an issue. Cephas is another one to whom people are devoted. Cephas is another name for Peter, Simon Peter, as we know him. Um, take a look at John chapter 1, verse 42. Um, it's unclear if Peter ever actually went to Corinth, but it is quite possible that devout converts to Christianity from Judaism might have appealed to Peter or attributed some teaching to him, um, which was um, considered more faithful to their Jewish roots, like his version of Christianity might have significantly more Jewish flavor to it than the one that Paul is advocating among the Gentile churches outside of Jerusalem. The fact that Paul does not commend the group that says they belong to Christ implies that there's something else going on. There's something distorted in their perception of saying this. And it just may very well be that these people had actually sat under Jesus' ministry. Remember, we are still within the lifespan of people who would have been present when Jesus was on earth teaching and healing and ministering. And so they may feel that they are superior to Paul. They're appealing to Christ because they sat under his teaching. They heard him firsthand, and Paul didn't. Paul still opposed the gospel until after Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, and had ascended into heaven. Take note that Paul doesn't dismiss baptism. He's not saying baptism is nothing. He's just pointing out that baptism is a grace. It is a sacrament, and it is not dependent on who administers it. You're being baptized into the family of God, into a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The person who actually baptizes you is of no great significance. Um, there are a few verses in the Bible that seem to imply that Jesus may have actually baptized some people. And maybe some of these people are, are literally saying we were baptized by Jesus. Take a look at Matthew 3.14. Um, 
And there's a couple verses in John. John chapter 3, verses 22 and 26 seem to indicate that, um, first of all, Jesus tells John, you should be baptizing me. Um, and then it, it refers to uh, Jesus baptizing. But in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 of the Gospel of John, John clarifies that it wasn't actually Jesus baptizing. It was his disciples who were actually doing the baptizing. Verses 18 through 25 are the beginning of a section that goes into the second chapter, into verse 5. And so this portion divides into three sections. Divine wisdom and power are revealed through weak and foolish things in the eyes of the world. And these include the cross here in the first section, 18 through 25. It's revealed in the Corinthian church. They are weak and foolish, and that's in verses 26 through 31. And it's also revealed in Paul's preaching, which we talk about in the first part of chapter 2. Worldly wisdom is insufficient to comprehend God's wisdom as it has been revealed in the crucifixion. Both groups, Jews and Greeks, find Jesus confounding. The Jews wanted the messianic signs that they were anticipating, and the Greeks want the gospel to be argued using the rhetorical style around them in in philosophical terms. In verse 19, there's a quote from Isaiah 29, 14. In verses 26 through 31, we talk about the weak and foolishness of the Corinthian church. The social background of the Corinthian believers illustrates the irony of God's revelation. God has not chosen the powerful, the rich, or the most influential, at least not exclusively. Um, The righteousness that is talked about here, righteousness is imputed to us from Jesus. In other words, that's an accounting term. It's credited to us, even though we haven't earned it. When we accept Jesus, that gets credited to us. When God looks at you, He doesn't see you in your sin. He sees you through the lens of Jesus and the righteousness of Christ. There's a reference to sanctification. This is a call to universal holiness, which is only possible because the Holy Spirit comes to us, and the Holy Spirit comes to us because of Jesus Christ. And the term redemption is here. This is complete deliverance from all evil, and it comes to us because of the crucifixion and the resurrection. We move into chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, talk about how the glory of God is seen in the weak and foolishness of Paul's preaching. Um, Paul talks about how he delivered the message to which they responded. They didn't respond to Paul. They're responding to Jesus to the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, now, Paul was a well-educated man. All Jewish boys learned Scripture, Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as well as the um, prophets and the writings from the age of five. He was also a student of Gamaliel, who was the grandson of the great Rabbi Hillel. Um, Rabbi Gamaliel is one of the most important figures in Jewish history. He was even given the title Rabban. Um, Rabban is an even higher title than Rabbi. 
Um, it was often given to the president of the Sanhedrin, which is the council um, the, of the religious leaders. But Gamaliel, to be a disciple of Gamaliel was quite an honor. Um, we know that Paul knew at least three languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. Aramaic was the commonly spoken language. He learned Hebrew from Gamaliel, and he writes his letters in Greek. Um, what he had not studied and what he does not use in his teaching are the philosophical methods of his day, uh, particularly among the Greeks. One example of that would be the Socratic method, which is um, a series of asking and answering questions to stimulate critical thinking. A very common instructional method used by the rabbis, which is what he would have learned, is that a particular text out of scripture is cited, and then it's interpreted by a rabbi. This is what it means. Then another rabbi would come along and comment both on the scripture text and on the commentary that has been presented by the rabbi or rabbis, which has preceded him. So interpretation of a particular religious passage could be many, many, many pages long. Verse 1 is a reference to the mystery cults around them. Um, Lofty words or wisdom are referring to the Hellenistic or Greek style of debate and rhetoric. In verse 4, plausible words of wisdom is a reference to the persuasiveness of wisdom and their tactics of presenting it. There were endless possible assertions that could be made about anything, and the key was to make them with conviction and to persuade others that you're correct. Chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 3, verse 4, are in the next section of the letter. Divine wisdom is focused on the mystery of the gospel in Jesus Christ, and that truth is revealed to people by the Holy Spirit. And you can understand it only if you're spiritual, only if you're allowing the Holy Spirit to illuminate it for you. Um, maturity is needed to comprehend God's wisdom, and the maturity that is needed for that is contrasted against the current state of the Corinthian church, where Paul calls them infants in chapter 3, verse 1. In verses 6 through 16 of chapter 2, we know that the city of Corinth, as well as the believers, seem to have valued the mystery cults around them. Those are the, uh, the pagan religions. In these mystery cults, their secret knowledge, their secret knowledge that only comes to people who are initiated into that particular group. And then as you progressed higher and higher within the religion, there's more, there's more secret knowledge given to you. So the longer you had been an adherent, the more deeply you went into it, the more secret knowledge you had. The fact that there's no secret knowledge in Christianity becomes a, a stumbling block. It was disappointing to them. They're wanting there to be more secret stuff they can achieve. Um, so Paul argues that the ability to discern God's wisdom is more special and more important than any human wisdom. To be a part of this move of God Almighty is more special than little tidbits of secret knowledge. In verse 9, there's a quote from Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. Now, 
the Corinthian believers, they're not receiving secret knowledge from an oracle in an ecstatic state in some of this pagan worship. No, to be a believer is to get the very Spirit of God speaking directly to you, living and residing within you, searching everything about you and revealing the very depths of God to you. And that's infinitely better than experiencing some um, ecstatic state in a, in a mystery religion. In verse 14, unspiritual is another way of saying natural. Um, natural means unspiritual. Um, those who are unable to comprehend the divine mystery of Christianity are unable to understand it because their understanding has not been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. They have to allow the Holy Spirit to open their eyes and allow them to see. In verse 16, it says that we have the mind of Christ. Cross-reference this with Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21, and there's a quote here or an allusion to it of Isaiah 40, 13. So what does it mean for us to have the mind of Christ? It really means that we can um, think and love like Christ. It does not mean that we can know everything or understand everything that God does. Um, we can't become God, but we can know as much as we will accept um, God revealing to us. We can look at things the way Jesus does. We can adopt Jesus' perspective of the world, which means we can love like Jesus loved. We can have compassion and mercy and justice and we can understand plans and purposes the way Jesus did. And that's what it means to have the mind of Christ. And with that, the second chapter of the first Corinthian letter in our Bible comes to a close.